Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast. My name is Mark. Here with me today is Matt. Hey, what's up, Mark? What's new? Not much. And today we have a really interesting topic for you. We're going to go over a situation uh, that happened a couple weeks ago when we were playing the game Dominant Species that we're going to call an oversight moment. But before going into that, let's talk about a game that I, in particular, am very excited about. So recently there was the Gamma Trade Show, which is kind of the big show for the publishers. Uh, it's kind of, if you're familiar with video games, it's kind of like the E3 of board gaming, as far as I can tell. And one game that I was very excited about that finally got a full preview at this game show is First Martians. Now in the last podcast, we talked about Robinson Crusoe and how we had a fantastic time playing that at PAX. First Martians, it's kind of a, a spiritual sequel to Robinson Crusoe. It uses the same sort of mechanisms as by the same designer. But instead of being stranded on a desert island, it's about people trying to survive on Mars. And I don't know how much you know about this game other than what I just said, Matt. Have you researched into it at all? No, I haven't. That's all I knew. Robinson Crusoe on Mars is, is pretty much what I've heard. And that's basically what it is. But there are a couple details that I found out that were, that were very interesting. The first is that instead of having the action cards or the event cards that, that you get in Robinson Crusoe, they're actually building an app to do all of that. Okay, so that the mechanic where every turn you're, you're turning over from, from that central deck of events that happen, basically all the bad things are coming to bite you. Yeah, all of that's going to be on an have, app now. Don't have to manage that anymore. Yes. Well, you have to manage it as far as just hitting the button on the app. And so that allows them to do a couple of things that seemed really exciting. The first was that they already have twice as many cards, essentially, and yeah. they're planning to release more. They, they said they have, I think, 500 different events right now, and they're planning to go you know easily over 1,000. Yeah. We recently played uh, Robinson Crusoe for the first time. And we're super impressed. We probably only got through a fifth of the... the well, not even. Not even of the action cards. I mean, there um, was an entire deck I don't think we even ever touched. Yeah, but it, it seems like the kind of game that we would enjoy playing over and over again. Um, oh, yeah, because so, every single one of those event cards were really interesting. Yeah. And so they're going to have a, a bunch more of these in the app. And also, apparently, they're going to have difficulty settings so when you start the game you select on the app what difficulty level you want and then every single event is tagged for not only different difficulty levels but different keywords and that way the app can then focus your experience based on keywords that happened previously oh wow that's awesome so they're going to have it from what I could tell uh, in the interview they're going to have it make a more cohesive story based on what happens early in the game very cool. Which is awesome. Very cool. On top of that, another tidbit is that they're they're going really hard science fiction here. Like, there's not going to be aliens. There's not going to be weird stuff like that. It's just going to be the basics of managing oxygen levels and food and exploration with the rover and, and power levels and things like that. So uh, the way people were describing it is kind of like the movie The Martian, except with more than one person. And then the final thing that, that's really interesting is that in Robinson Crusoe, you have these six different scenarios. You know, we, we went through the starter one and there were five others. So there's a little bit of replayability there in terms of the scenarios or a little bit of variety there. First Martians is going to ship with six scenarios just like Robinson Crusoe, but it's also going to have two different campaign scenarios 
that each comprise of five different games. Oh, fantastic. And then because of the app, you're allowed it lets you save your game at a certain state and then it'll remind you when you come back to it how to set up the game uh, to resume your progress. So I think that's awesome. Wow, that yeah, that sounds really cool. That that's an interesting evolution of the legacy game i mean it's better than well in some senses it's it's better than putting stickers on your board and and ripping things up yeah Uh, i think there's a lot of possibility here for games to copy this kind of thing and use you know digital tools this way i think if you're going to have app and digital integration into board games it should be limited but i think if you're going to do it this is kind of the way to do it that that's awesome yeah that gets me excited for the future of sort of campaigns within board games yeah i think the campaign part is the most exciting part for me i don't know how i will feel getting rid of the actual physical cards when i play it part of me thinks that it's not going to be a big deal but another part of me is maybe going to just miss physical cards so i'm I'm interested to see how i react to that one because i'm sure we're going to get this game it's it, it looks fantastic yeah yeah uh, so that's all I wanted to talk about coming out of Gamma. That was the big thing that I saw. Very cool. So now let's get to this topic of oversight moments. And, and we're kind of going to focus on this for the rest of the, of the podcast. Because I think, it's, I think it's a very interesting situation that happened. What we're doing is we're playing Dominant Species, which Matt kind of hates and kind of loves. Is that an accurate yeah, that's, sum of the... Yeah, that is pretty accurate. It's the game that I've only... I've played maybe four times now. And every time I have a reaction that this is this is a really cool game, and I, I always have, while playing it, I have stretches where I'm like, I hate this game, and I, I, I never want to play this game again. And that's that's kind of understandable, given that it's an incredibly mean game. It's a Euro game, it's, it's a worker placement Euro game with area control. But it's designed by a guy who I think previously only designed war games, only only conflict battle games. His name's Chad Jensen, and I think he's most famously known before Dominant Species uh, for the Combat Commander series, which I haven't played, but I've been interested in for a while. And it really shows. It's an incredibly mean game. I remember in one game, my species literally went extinct by about one third of the way through, and I had to completely build up from scratch again. It's that kind of game. Didn't, didn't you win that game? I don't know if I won. I might have I might have come back to play second or something like that. You, can, you I, I can, can make a resurgence. Yeah, you came back strong. So while it's mean, there are ways to come back. But essentially how it works is that you're simulating in the game the, the progress of different classifications of animals throughout an ice age in, in prehistoric times. So one player will be the insects or the arachnids or the birds or something like that. And throughout the game, you're, you're exploring the board and, and getting new tiles for the board, but you're also expanding the ice age. So the tiles, particular hexagons, will be covered with ice, and then they're more or less inhabitable. You can still go there, but it's very limited. And how the game works is that you, your species, your cubes, can only be on a hex if the habitat of that hexagon is suitable for your species. So one of the things you can do is increase what kind of food and what kind of habitat your species is able to thrive on, and that will give you access to more areas of the board. But throughout the game, different areas will lose habitats and food 
that allow your species to stay there. So one of the one of the big tensions of the game is that you want to watch out and make sure that you're not going to go extinct in a particular hex because of the habitat declining. And also you want to increase where you can go generally by increasing what habitat they're acclimated to. So in this game, we're, we're nearing the end of the game. The Ice Age section of the board is fairly significant, and Matt has a big presence on those ice age tiles on those yeah. glacier tiles yeah so i was i was playing the birds each type of species group of species that you can play has a special so i was playing the birds and that allowed me more freedom and movement so at some point mid game i i kind of made a pivot and put a, a bunch of species on all of the tundra the all of the glacier tiles which is kind of a risky strategy. If you can pull it off, you can score a lot of points. But like the things that Mark mentioned earlier, it's harder to survive because uh, the habitat's just declining, and, and you can't support your species there on the on the tundra. Yeah, and it declines more on the on the glacier than in other places as well. And one of the areas of the game is that as different food types progress on the action board they'll get to a spot a spot called wasteland what that means is when that that food type say grass or grub goes into the wasteland at the end of that round all instances of that of those types that are touching a glacier hexagon will be eliminated and at this point in the game mats all over the glaciers and essentially every single habitat type that is touching glacier is grass and he's been really strong on grass throughout the whole game and grass slipped into this wasteland spot now there is an action there's one space where someone can place a pawn one of their action one of their workers essentially one of their action pawns into that space and then prevent that habitat type from being eliminated at the end of the round yeah so so this is something that we could pretty much all see see coming from a turn away because as these habitat markers move down turn to turn they start in in a space above the wasteland and then on the the turn of the round they move down into wasteland and unless you really have a reason you really need to prevent something from being destroyed by wasteland you don't normally go there 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 are lots of really useful things you can do I think there are, what, maybe 12, a dozen or so different actions. There are lots, right, of, right. lots of actions that you want to do. Wasteland isn't one that you're always looking forward to. Well, it's a purely defensive action. It only really matters if it's going to save your skin. But in this situation, because grass was in the wasteland spot, because grass was essentially the only thing that was keeping Matt from going extinct on the tundra, he had to take this spot. And I think it was a four-player game. Both me and Orion, I think, immediately recognized that this was a crucial step for Matt's survival. And he was Matt was clearly winning the game at this point. Uh, because essentially, in a four-player game, what happened was Matt and I kind of went off into a corner of the board. And Orion and, and Ben went off into a separate corner of the board and they battled it out. Matt and I kind of battled it out, but I made some poor decisions early and I was really behind. So it, it let Matt kind of take over his half of the board. So he was clearly in the, in the dominant position at that point, and he just missed the Wasteland spot. He just missed seeing it. And then Orion, on his first turn, hits Wasteland, blocking Matt from taking that action. 
and it probably took we estimated what 40 points away from you yeah yeah i think i think it was about a 40 point swing in a game where the final score is going to the winning score is going to be around 200 points so it was very significant so when orion put his pawn there instantly i i was oh my goodness i can't believe that i didn't go there i can't believe you know that i'm obviously the only person that cares about wasteland you know there's no one else is on the tundra and as soon as he placed it, it was like oh my gosh that was so obvious i had to go there that, like that, that was the cornerstone basically of, of my strategy was controlling the few resources that were left on the tundra and as soon as orion did it it was like well that was so obvious i you know i i just and you and you got really mad like so, actually mad yeah so when that happened i mean it felt like I had just thrown away my chance at victory. You know, it was still far enough to away be, from to the be, end. To, just to be clear, you did end up winning the game still. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. But, it, well, I, I recovered. We'll, we'll say that. I, I recovered. <laughs> we, and we can talk about that later. I was happy with how I recovered. So, you know, yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah, you recovered well so, and still won so the game. So I but... had, a, you know, the same experience that I always have. I, I hate it and then and then I like it. And... But I found it to be a really interesting moment because I don't think I'd ever seen you get so mad at yourself while playing a board game before. And it puzzled me why this in particular over other times, you know, because we all miss things in, in games. None of us are at the point where we're playing optimally, you know, all the time. No no one can do that for any, right, for right. any game. But why this particular moment affected you that much? So I don't know exactly what it was about that moment, but... When I realized all in a split second when Orion put his action pawn down there that my strategy, which really looked like it was coming together, all of a sudden looked like it was going to result in like literally the mass extinction of all of my birds. Yeah, so I guess the, the, moment, the moment affects you because of the severity of it. I guess the... But the, thi the thing is... It's such an obvious play. So I think what what really bothered me is I had I, I, I had all these things worked out in, in my my head, but there was still sort of this 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 bit of the game that was sort of hidden to me. And so that reveal wasn't a, a good experience. It was an obvious thing that i missed right and i think a game that puts you in positions where you miss something that after the fact you think i was so stupid that's what really bothers me well because the game has a certain level of complexity it's really hard to keep track of all of these moving parts like it's a fairly complicated game and it has well, as you said probably 12 or 15 different actions and not only do the individual actions matter, but the order in which they happen matter and what other players have chosen matter as well. So there's a lot to keep in your head at one point. And well, let, let's break this down now because I know the conversation we had after the game, we compared it to Dominion. And my comment was that to me, what happened to you, which by the way, remember the game before when we played it a couple of months ago where pretty much exactly the same thing happened where I needed 
one action. What I needed to take one particular action yeah. to save my lead yeah. and close out the game. And this was literally on the last round of the game, and I just didn't see it. And then Amber comes comes by, takes that action, and, and you know it's like an eighty point swing or something at the end of the game. In my mind, that doesn't feel any different than playing a game of Dominion, getting five turns into the game seeing what the other players have done and realizing, oh, wow, I missed the obvious combo on the on the kingdom board that I should have been going for, or at least should have been accounting for. Yeah, and to be honest, I felt bad when, you, when it happened to you. <laughs> you know, there's a large part of me that wants to retcon the obvious thing. I want to say, well, yeah, Mark, obviously your strategy was such that you needed to take that move. Just, just, just go back. Just rewind it. Just rewind it and take it because we all know that, you know, there was, there was nothing hidden there. That, that's what you were supposed to do. In Dominion, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm putting together a strategy. I, I'm building a deck. Sometimes it's very similar to other people. Sometimes it'll be a game where we're, we're taking very different strategies. But as I'm building my deck, I, I feel like it's a, a somewhat creative ende- endeavor. And then at the end, it, it either comes together or it doesn't. But it wasn't because I, I missed something obvious. I, I don't feel like the game was hiding anything from me. But I think, to me, it's exactly the same situation because sometimes you set up a Dominion Kingdom, uh, and for those who haven't played Dominion, there's there's a selection of 10 different types of cards that are out there available for you to put into your deck. And sometimes there are two or three piles of cards there that I think anyone would say are the obvious play. And sometimes, you know, if you really dig deep into it, you can demonstrably prove that there is a correct play on a particular kingdom pile. And so to me, it's kind of the same thing. So let's, uh, let's break this down a bit more. My theory is that the reason why it affects you so much in this particular instant in Dominant Species and not in Dominion is just the immediacy of it. I guess just the immediacy of it, right? Because it happens all at once. In Dominion, if you find out you you chose a poor strategy and that your cards aren't going to synchronize very well or that you pick too many terminal actions or something like that, you find out kind of gradually throughout the game. So I guess the bad news is revealed to you over time rather than hitting you like a sack of bricks all at once. Do you think that's fair to say? Or do you still think that it's a fundamentally different circumstance? That certainly might be a large part of it. Because in in the immediate feedback situation, you immediately feel bad, and you 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 immediately feel like there was an obvious better play for what you were trying to do. Okay, that, I I think that makes a bit more sense. I think I understand a bit more how we can parse this, and I think it actually goes back to what we're calling this situation an oversight moment in the Dominion example. It's not a matter of not seeing the correct move. It's just you made a judgment call one one way or the other. And that yeah. if you had... I think that's well, exactly but, right. But but it, to me, uh, on, in some sense, it's still kind of the same thing. Because maybe if you had looked at the Dominion Kingdom so, cards for a couple of minutes longer, you might have seen the other play. Sure. But would it have been immediately obvious to me? which one was the better better choice first of all in dominion that that makes sense first actually. of all in dominion I, i've never encountered the situation where a certain card just completely escaped me 
especially if other people are buying it, right? Well, I think it's fair to say you're probably better at Dominion than Dominant Species as well. I've, I've played Dominion more than four times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've probably played Dominion, what, a thousand times? No, 400 maybe. Okay. No, I, don't <laughs> I mean, um, counting online. I didn't play online that much. Oh, really? Okay. You played more online than I did. Okay. Yeah. Well, still. Yeah. I, so in Dominion, I've never had had the you know the, the the sensation of just completely not considering something so when i go back and think about okay i didn't i didn't build my engine quite right it wasn't because i just the game hid some possibility from me you know that that's the feeling so if i had spent another 20 seconds you know just going through all of the options of where i could have placed my pawn you know, if I had just spend that extra 30 seconds or 60 seconds, then I would have chosen the right thing. So I think I think we what we've come down to, at least in this particular comparison, is that the distinction is kind of threefold. First, it's in the immediacy of how it hits you. Second, I think that there's a distinction in it seems less like a judgment call and more like a missed opportunity, like, you know, an oversight. And I think the third distinction we're coming to here is that, well, actually, maybe two more little points. First, the idea that, oh, I could have just, we could just rewind this and then have me make the right play and it's easy to fix. And so there's, there's, that adds to the moment of regret, I think. Yeah, and, definitely. And I forgot what my other point was, but I think kind of a combination of that creates this this potential for the oversight moment whereas i i really, there's not really that potential in a game like dominion where your victory is kind of the sum of a lot of little moves and no move in particular is going to be that substantial yeah i think i i like that i i especially like the the judgment call idea you know not not going on wasteland that wasn't a judgment call anyone you know who can think yeah, if, somewhat rationally knows that the birds needed the grass to not disappear from all of the tundra yeah yeah there's, no, there's, that makes sense there wasn't any question yeah so i think i think i understand your position a bit more i mean i understood it before right i empathized i couldn't quite in my own brain make a distinction between this and the in the dominion example but i think we have made a distinction here let's talk a bit about what kind of game has the potential of creating this negative oversight moment experience. I think the obvious thing is, I guess, the swinginess of the game. So the the potential for any one particular move to have a dramatic effect on the game. Yeah. Like we said, with with Dominion, you know, the first couple of turns are fairly important, but you can recover from a bad first two turns. Other than that, any given turn isn't going to be that significant, or at least the distance between the best move, the second best move, and the third best move is going to be fairly tight. And if you take you know, any of those three, then you're probably going to be okay. You may not win the game. You, know, you may have to make more optimal moves to win the game, but those aren't going to be as obvious and the distinction isn't going to be as, as strong. Whereas in Dominant Species, and I guess not in that many other games... There are these moves that can be incredibly dramatic. Yeah, there, there are these things that can happen that really change the board. Yeah, and to me, that's one of the things that makes Dominant Species great. Because it really feels like you're simulating 
hundreds and thousands of years. Sure, yeah. Or million, (laughs) I don't know how long it's supposed to simulate, but a massive time frame as the Ice Age continues and your species struggles to survive. You know, you can be wiped to the brink of extinction and then maybe make a resurgence somewhere or vice versa. And you have all these big, powerful, dramatic moves as volcanoes erupt and, you know, different migration patterns happen, all those kinds of things. Make it a very thematic game in that way. So, yeah. So it's kind of a double-edged sword there. So how about another game that's huge and and can be swingy? I'm looking at Twilight Imperium up there. Yeah, that's the obvious choice for big and swingy. Yeah, and sometimes, especially, um, let's say in your first five plays of uh, of the game, sometimes it's hard to work out all of the consequences of all of the action cards. And that's an that's an example of a game also that has a different conundrum from Dominant Species. In Dominant Species, pretty much the whole game is open and on the board. There's a a little bit of randomness with a deck, but once you reveal the cards on that deck, everyone knows about them. In Twilight Imperium, if you don't know about the existence of certain action cards or political cards, it could really affect you. Like, some of those action cards are huge. Yeah. They can destroy massive ships. They can allow you to sneak past. Actually, that's what happened in our very first game of Twilight Imperium is I think I won or I came close to winning because I found an action card that allowed me to sneak past Amber's uh, army and take over her base which was my secret objective or, or her home planet right right and up to that yeah. point no one except me be only and only because i had drawn the card knew that that was even potentially an ability yeah so then you have those moments where wow if i would just known about the existence of this card that's you know drawn randomly from a deck then i wouldn't have been completely devoured yeah that's true but in that situation you know i i would have to you know be honest with myself, even if I did know the contents of that entire deck, it was still a 1 in 50 possibility that that's the card you had. True. I don't know your secret ob- objective. Um, you know, so so when it comes down to it, I couldn't honestly say that had I thought of that, I would have done something differently. So perhaps we should, we should mention now and, and talk about if your group of friends who plays board games plays the game 20 times and learns it inside and out at some point this stops being an issue because you know all of the remotely obvious things yeah yeah once you understand the game to the point where you know checking for the wasteland you know what's going to come off with the wasteland uh, ability is just second nature to you then it, it ceases to be an issue so once you gain a certain level of mastery where you're thinking purely in terms of tactics and strategy and not just in terms of making sure you check up on all the things you need to right. check up on it, it stops being a problem. So I guess these oversight moments, admittedly, are, are only an issue kind of in that initial earlier phases when you're you're playing out the game for the first half dozen times. And this kind of ties into an issue that I know a lot of gaming groups have trouble with and something that I know you... In particular, I don't mean to single you out so much on this podcast, but I guess we're gonna we're gonna take a trip inside just your dig, brain for a bit. Just dig into me. Just dig in, okay. I don't live here. And that problem is what it, it's commonly known in the board game world as analysis paralysis. In other words, and you probably know someone like this, the kind of person who, when playing a board game, even though the, their intentions may be fine and noble, but sometimes and or maybe frequently. 
they get to a spot in the game where they simply can't make a decision. They look over their choices, they calculate it in their brains, they do it again and again, and, and they're just slowing the entire game down because they're trying to find the best the best play and just can't settle on anything. Yeah, I think that I fall prey to analysis paralysis in many situations. Um, yeah, situations where I think I'm just going to miss something, or like you said, situations where I am, am trying to calculate, you know, to some level, all of the options that I do see to, to figure out which is the best. Yeah, and it's a weird situation because I, I think based on what I've read in other discussions, it seems like it's almost like a fundamental personality distinction between people who have this problem. Now I'm making it sound like a disease. <laughs> um, it's not a disease. Well, I don't You're know. You're all loved too. It's fine. I don't know why you, you don't have it as much as I do. I know because we're very similar people. INTP. I yeah. You know, this is the perceiving. Like we just want to just take it in until the, you know, the obvious thing just jumps out. <laughs> kind of. I don't know. And I have, I'm going to, I'm going to dig into both of our brains for a bit. I have a hastily thought of theory that I just came up with two seconds ago about why this may be. Oh, boy. Even though we have very similar personalities. And maybe it's because Myers-Briggs personality types aren't actually scientific, <laughs> although they do seem very useful. Maybe it's that you went into the sciences and stuck with that, and you're still in the sciences. Whereas I briefly flirted with science in middle school and then rejected it <laughs> and ended up switching from economics to philosophy. And now I do writing in more creative things. Like, I don't calculate on a day-to-day -day basis, but you do. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, naturally, when I'm putting in, into a situation where you can put quantitative values on the different choices, you know, you just, you want to make the best one. Yeah, whereas and, I, I don't... But not, not all situations are like that. Going back to Dominion, I don't feel like that in Dominion. I feel like there's more creativity in those situations. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's harder to calculate in Dominion. Yeah, I mean, does do you not want to analyze the situation and pick the, pick the you know the best one? What is it that you can just stop and do something? I do this for very few games. I can think of two, and I bet you can guess what they are. Where I actually do calculations and I do try to find the optimal move and I do really I guess calculates the right word calculate the game in a very it's, it's not so it's not suburbia because we played that the other no, it's not suburbia the suburbia there's there's lots of good options and I'm not as competitive in it what are the two <laughs> games I play more than any other games netrunner that'd be one um castles of burgundy that'd be the other yeah I think it's just I get I, I allow myself to get involved in very few games on that level where I'm trying to calculate the right move in that level, in, in that depth. Now, I think because, particularly because of Netrunner has given me not only playing runner, Netrunner, but reading about Netrunner and reading about card games has given me a bit more insight into, I guess Hearthstone falls into this as well, because I've read a lot about Hearthstone, has given me a little bit more insight into how these games are created and how there's kind of a standard cost that they that the designers make and they try to cost their cards on a particular power level. And that has applications across all kinds of different games. So I think I'm getting better at calculating 
the power of different actions so, so the, generally, the but more, I don't think about it to the depth that I do with Netrunner or Castles of Burgundy. The more you play those games and read about those games, you kind of develop an intuition about the value of certain yes. cards. Yeah. And then it's just for, and then for a lot of Euro games and a lot of, well, a lot of games in general, they all follow the kind of the same narrative arc where you're, you're building up something, either an engine yeah. or a tableau. You're just, you're, you're constructing your building. That's kind of a distinguishing feature of the European influence on board games. And then at a certain point, you have to kind of flip the switch and go for victory points or at least prepare for the a kind of late game switch. So there's there's always this kind of turning point. Not always. There's mostly this kind of turning point somewhere in the game where you need to understand the flow of the game and the timing of the game and how the game is evaluating its ability, its different methods of getting victory points. And then it becomes kind of this game of timing and and cost analysis. And I think I'm getting a little bit better at that just intuitively, but I don't actively try to do that except in very few situations yeah i don't know it, it's hard it, even now it's it's hard for me to to really put a finger on it. it you know it's not like i actually am consciously trying to assign value to you know, you know all the options well let's yeah. let's look at this at a different angle what is going on in your head when you're kind of stuck and you're taking a longer turn or are you even stuck are you at a point where you're, you're like you feel like you're stuck or are you just methodically going through all the options? What's what's happening? Yeah, so I think analysis paralysis is a really apt term because I think I can find myself in a paralyzing moment. We played um, Food Chain Magnet yesterday. It was my first time playing Food Chain, Chain Magnet. Yeah. And on a first play, I'm definitely more okay with the idea that I'm just going to make bad decisions. Um, sure. Yeah. N- no problem. But still, there's a, there, there are a lot of different things to think about so even i remember early in the game i was trying to figure out who i was going to hire you know was i going to go for management middle management was i going to go and get waitresses or was i going to start marketing and hire an intern even at that you know early stage in the game i just think well, i don't know i don't know why well, i could do i could do the marketer and then i could and then i could get an advantage on everyone in marketing and that's going to serve me greatly game or you know but then i say oh but wait a minute i could get a waitress and set up my economy better and that'd be great and then i think oh i'm gonna run out of slots in my management tree so i should just go for the manager but then i go back to the marketer and and that looks great and so you kind of get stuck where you you don't have the capability to make those kinds of calculations so you kind of get stuck at a spot where since you you don't have the experience or the knowledge of the game necessary to actually calculate, it kind of just causes your brain to freeze. Is that is that an accurate portrayal? Yes, I think that I think that's pretty accurate. And and but but I think also that I can recognize when I'm not going to actually make the best decision, or a, a situation where maybe there isn't you know a particular option that is clearly the best. And when I recognize that that's the situation, then you just make the best valuation you can, and then you do something. Right. Right. It's maybe there are just some games where you feel like you can definitely figure out what the best option is. And yet for some reason you just start cycling. Oh, so is it, is it the feeling of of feeling like you're very close to finding it? Like you're on the precipice of finding the right move and you just need a little bit more time to tip over that edge. 
Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah, definitely. Or I'm 90% to the way of, of being certain of the right move, but it just feels like I'm missing something. So better oh, go through yeah. it one more time. Oh, that, that's super interesting. And again, I, I don't want to make this sound like some yeah, because, kind of because you've, impairment. You've said things like you just you see a good option and maybe a better option, but you found something that's good and you'll just do it. Yeah, and this kind of goes this goes to we're planning to talk about in the first place, which is this concept called satisficing. And this is something I found a little while ago when I was researching heuristics, and I think it's an incredibly useful concept to to understand and be aware of. It was created by a psychologist. I think he was a psychologist, uh, Herbert Simon, in 1956. And essentially, it's this idea that when making decisions, because you can't always find the optimal move, and this is, I believe, in the context of making decisions in business, if you can't find the optimal move or make the correct calculation or even quantify what you're trying to do, you need to be able to hit a certain acceptability threshold. And once a, a decision reaches that acceptability threshold, then that's the decision you take. So it's a way to make decision making easier. And I don't know exactly what the applications are in psychology. I assume that for some people, you kind of teach them how to be better at satisficing. And the word, by the way, is a, is a portmanteau of satisfy and suffice. So you suffice with the decision and then you're satisfied by it or something like that and to me it's not only a prescriptive way of, of thinking about decision making but it's also descriptive in some sense we're yeah, always it, satisfied it, it seems like it seems like that's the case it, it seems like in in every decision that we make we have some threshold of i feel confident enough about this yeah it's extremely rare in any decision that you're making the objectively correct choice because oftentimes you can't it's impossible to determine what the objectively correct choice is so so talking about board games again quickly there are games where all of the information is known and there probably is an objective best right and there's so, certain games so, that are actually solved and you can learn what that are like right, i, I right. think I think it's possible for humans to play a perfect game of checkers, for instance. Sure. Yeah. And, and so in one of those cases, I mean, why not have a satisfaction, satisficing threshold of 100% where you, you've just calculated it out that this is the correct move to play? See, that sounds horrible. Like, sure, for me, if I knew that that was possible... Well, I would, what, first of all, not want to do it. Well, but secondly, I would not become interested in the game anymore. Like, no one has fun with solved games Yeah, anymore. well, that's why we don't play checkers. Sure, yeah. Um, and while, you know, it's fairly close, for, I, I think, anyway, we're fairly close to solving chess, at least once it is solved, I don't think it's going to be possible for humans to ever reach that level of mastery. Like, only a computer is going to be able to do it. I don't know that we're solving chess. By my understanding... The computers that are beating us at chess are doing so by, you know, machine learning where they just take in a million billion games and then... Well, I know they're doing that. that with Go. I thought with chess, the number of potential moves was potentially solvable, or given the number of potential moves that it was going to be solvable. And then Go, you know, it's one of those situations, if I remember correctly, and I could be entirely wrong, so please tell me in the comments if I'm wrong about this. I th but I think you're I wrong. Think, I, think, <laughs> I, I think I read somewhere where to solve Go, like the computer would have to be more dense than all the atoms in the universe or something like that. I don't know. You know more about this stuff than I do. 
Yeah, I think I don't know. I Am don't I know. completely the, the, wrong? I think you're completely wrong. I think that right. I don't think that we're going to solve chess. I think we've just barely gotten to the point, you know, in the last 10 years where computers are going to beat us. Well, regardless, no one really plays solve games anymore. And to me, the satisfying thing really explains how I play games. I always think of it in terms of satisfying. I'm never trying to find I'm rarely trying to find the optimal move. In Netrunner I am because I know the calculations, I know my deck. Maybe that's part of it. I know my deck very well and yeah. then I'm able it, it's kind of like part of it's you know it's my creation so I'm able to analyze it a bit better. But in just playing any given board game, I've either decided on a strategy and so I do things within that strategy. Or I try to get a feel of the game and then just reach something that I'm like, well, that seems positive or that seems productive. I'll go for that. And in some sense, it's also because a lot of the games that we play incorporate some area or some aspect of randomness that part of reaching a certain acceptability threshold is just being able to ballpark calculate randomness, right? Yeah. You think so? Yeah, I I think so, but but if you are taking to count randomness, then your sort of your your threshold is naturally lower, I think. See, for me, I don't feel like it is necessarily lower. I think I think I almost have a harder time when there is randomness just because I'm not quite as good at calculating that or at least i know that there are a lot of psychological pitfalls when it comes to calculating randomness but and how to make those kinds of evaluations yeah maybe it's just because you know the consequences of of not doing the optimal thing won't come immediately back in your face that i'm not as worried about it or is it that if you make the suboptimal move and then there's some kind of random element and you fail you can then your brain knows that you can then just blame the dice but it's also harder to evaluate what's optimal in a situation where there's where there's randomness or dice because because one of the fundamental uh, strategic aspects of games is that the more you're losing or the more you're behind the more beneficial it is for you to take a higher variance play so, for instance, in Netrunner, you know, if you're on game point and your opponent seems to have the ability to score out and win the game, it's to your advantage to make kind of a Hail Mary run or a Hail Mary play to try to squeeze out the victory. Even though it's certainly not the most optimal play, yeah, you have a high likelihood of failure. Yeah, you're counting on the stars aligning that you might score right because at that point you're probably at the point where that's your only chance of winning so you know that's that's different from calculating the odds because you're deliberately choosing a low likelihood of success play but it's still by any standard you know by the standard of wanting to win the game and not lose the game it's the best play but of course, there there are always decisions in between that, right? There are decisions you can make maybe at a blank slate at the beginning of the game, where you you know the the best play is purely based on the odds. But as the game progresses and the and the state of the game progresses and your position, you know, either going ahead or falling behind, the calculation has to change based on how consistent or reliable the play is, if you're ahead, or what your potential reward is if you're behind even if there's a lower chance of success yeah and to me those decisions end up being harder than in a 
perfect information or a nearly perfect information game with little or no randomness where I know, okay, I could sit here and calculate the best move, but I'm just going to pick one that's good enough. I guess for me, so maybe... What, so in a game where there, there's low randomness, sort of the 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 less than optimal moves are just less interesting, I guess, to me. Okay. There's no... There's no reason to play the, you know, you know, the 70% play, the, the play that isn't, that's going to result in, in, in fewer points. There's just, why would you do that? As soon as you see that there was a better play, that's what you would have done. It's not really interesting. Whereas I think you could even say the, the randomness in, in Dominion of, you know, the order of the cards come up and whatnot, it was still interesting to to build a, a different engine that might not have been the best, you know, it, it, it's, it's what you went with and, and it, it was fun to see how it worked out. Yeah. I think this might be the major difference between you and I, and that is, I can't comprehend the idea of just going with something that might be suboptimal as a waste of time or not interesting. To me, exploring the game itself and exploring the mechanisms and exploring yeah, kind but... of the thought the designer put into the game, that in itself, even if for the first few games I'm playing very poorly, that's interesting. Because I know every time I play, I'm gathering information. And then at some point, I'll play the game and I'll know, okay, I, I can reasonably predict what the best so, move is going to be or what a really good move is going to be. Yeah, but the way that, that I see it, in a game with more randomness, you need to experience that in, in order to gather the information. You need to experience the suboptimal ones. You need to be creative and, and try different avenues of play to develop a sense of what is optimal. But a game where it's, you know, there's not a lot of randomness, where you can play out ahead what's going to happen if you just kind of math it out in your head long enough. You know, that's a situation where I just, I want to make the right move. I, I don't Wait. need to, I don't need to get the experience of doing 10 wrong things when, you know, just a little bit of... A little bit of time. Just a little bit of time. Exactly. Just a little bit of time solves the problem for you and you can just play optimally optimally the first time so to you in those kinds of games the act of solving that puzzle then is the fun part um yeah yeah i think i think that's probably true now i don't like that sort of paralysis in, in general but oh, but sure, yeah, yeah. If, if it's a reasonable amount you know if i can spend two minutes and, and be reasonably certain that I, i've gotten the best move move then yeah yeah that's that's fun yeah, see, for me, like, I wouldn't even start to consider that as an area of my thought. So, in other words, I wouldn't even start to consider the game as, okay, I'm, there's a puzzle here that I can try to solve to some extent. You know, we're not sitting here solving games or anything. Right, right, right. I wouldn't even <laughs> consider that until I've played it a certain number of times. For me, the first few games are just learning games. And I'm just going to play it to experience the game and experience the design. That's that's interesting, yeah. And then that doesn't even come into my mind until after a few plays. Yeah. And I, because I know throughout those learning games, or I guess experiential games where I'm just trying to kind of soak it in, I know that I'm going to gain enough knowledge to where I'm going to be more easily able to calculate my moves later on. 
That's really interesting. Who would you say in our gaming group wins games the first two or three times we play the most? Oh, I think Orion does. Orion? Oh, yeah. I, I think Orion's probably overall the best gamer in our group, do you think? Yeah. It, certainly certainly for the, the, heavy, the heaviest strategy ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I win more than you do early on. Yeah, I think you're better than me. Which... I don't. I don't bring this up just to bring you down. But well, no. The, I mean, I can. I, think, I can just come back and say I take half the time to do it. So <laughs> I think that it's maybe because this is the way we approach things, and and I want to solve that those puzzles that come up the first time. Whereas I'm I'm not considering it at all. Oh, I think that's probably yeah, exactly yeah, right. Yeah, I don't yeah, think any one really of us is necessarily smarter than the other person. No, no, no. Yeah. In terms of, of games, though, Orion comes up with stuff so much quicker than i do because <laughs> yeah, here's the thing yeah. right you and orion are really good at new games and about figuring out the new games really fast but orion doesn't have the analysis paralysis problem right right and we've talked to like he picks we've it talked up about so this fast. he he develops a plan and, and then goes for it but not only that i don't want to i don't want to be uh you know defending myself all that much i feel like i've, I've done a, a fairly decent job against orion in a lot of the new games we've played in the last Oh yeah, couple months. But I think he Orion. When Orion decides on a strategy, then he's like laser focused, right? But it, but it, that's it, fine. Anyone can do that. He chooses a very but, good strategy. Yeah. very frequently. Yeah, every I, once in a while it'll fall flat on his face. But he's pretty good at finding the the good strategies. So I, I guess my point is that if I choose a strategy, I end up having just as much paralysis around along the way as if I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think I've talked with him about this before and I, and he kind of approaches the games the same way that I do in that he just picks a decision and that's good enough to him and then goes with it and doesn't, doesn't get caught up in in his thoughts or in a strategy that much. He's just better at it than I am. So, yeah. So, (laughs) and Orion literally just walked into the room. He knew we were talking about him and he's like, he's just going to soak up all the praise. So Matt, going back to analysis paralysis, one thing that I feel is that you've gotten significantly better at making quicker decisions in games. Is that something that you've been trying to do? You're right. I, I have. So I guess... A little bit. I, 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 yeah. We, we've played enough games that I, I recognize that that's kind of a downer, both for me and for everyone else. <laughs> but um, like, it, I it's guess... not a fully conscious... I'm not just trying to, to, to make decisions faster. Oh, really? Okay. Because yeah. it, it certainly seems like you are. I'd have to do some some thinking about what's what's changed. Well, I mean, you're probably just more familiar with games in general and are able to read the state or the kind of the the basic strategies of a game more quickly. Yeah, maybe that's all it is. Um, that might be. But I guess what my, my ultimate question is, what advice would you give for people out there who think the way you do compared to the way I do when approaching games? Or do you have any advice? Just ignore all the haters? Just be a machine and calculate the best option. Just do it. (laughs) Just be the best at calculating? No. Um, Yeah, you can only only do so much. And I guess I'd say you have to pick the most important things to play out in your mind and, and not worry about everything. Maybe that's what I've gotten better at is deciding which things I'm going to worry about. Okay, so making kind of an initial judgment call of what you're going to calculate and what you're going to actively think about. Yeah. 
yeah. and narrow it down that way. I don't know if if the only way to do that is to play more board games. You know, well, certainly I mean, that's, certainly that's, that helps, but I, I I don't know if if making a conscious effort to do that would be effective or not. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. So there's the advice from a real life sufferer of analysis paralysis. Hopefully it helps all you other sufferers out there listening to this right now. I'm joking. APA. APA. It's APA. What? Analysis Paralysis Anonymous. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, man. I've seen so many Reddit threads and discussions about this, and it's hilarious because people do treat it... Not consciously, but the way they speak about it is like a disease. It's like, I have a friend who has AP. What do I do? I feel like I'm, I don't know, if I'm just more of a, a weekend warrior AP. You know, I don't, I don't feel like I have, have a, a chronic everyday problem. I feel like you I have it. You don't dip under, into the AP every day? I have it under control. I can control my, my analysis paralysis. That's what they all say. <laughs> but, I, but I can. Oh, man. So I think this has been a really interesting discussion. It, it wasn't. We talked about many more things than I thought we would, but hopefully you find this yeah this I don't helpful know what, and interesting. I don't know what we talked about, Mark. Yeah, we talked about a lot. I have my notes here and uh, about what I wanted to talk about, and that's probably like thirty percent of it. So hopefully you guys can forgive the rambling and the and the sidetracks, but uh, hopefully you find this helpful as well. I think I think the concepts of understanding satisfying and, and understanding how to make decisions quickly in games, my advice, and again, this is maybe different than what Matt would say, but my advice is just, you know, treat those first few games as learning games and understand, you know, accept before you, before coming in that you're probably going to lose the game and just be on the lookout for, for ways to understand the game more deeply. I mean, that's, to me, that's the pleasurable part about discovering and playing a new game is kind of getting into the designer's head and understanding how the different mechanisms work together. One thing that, that goes through my head when I play a new game is, um, was it designed in a way that throws me into analysis paralysis? Does it present me with situations where I'm going to regret immediately the wrong decision I made? Or does it lend itself to just playing through and exploring and enjoying as you t talked about? And, um, you know, are the mistakes reasonable mistakes to make, you know, not going in wasteland was not a reasonable mistake. Sure. Sure. <laughs> you're, I know you're still bitter about that one, but I hope you find this discussion interesting. You can always comment below and please tell us about, you know, the experiences you've had with making these types of mistakes. Do you, do you allow players in, in your group to rewind these mistakes, especially in a heavier game? Or do you force people to live with uh, the consequences of their actions. And I'm not talking about like the first play of the game where, you know, you might be more lenient, but you know, this is probably you, the fourth or fifth time we've played this game. Do you just hate the idea of, of retcon? Yeah. Do you, do you do despise it? I know different groups are different. And uh, if you, if you are someone who, who has trouble with making decisions quickly in games and, and, and has trouble with analysis paralysis, what are your methods that you've tried to kind of alleviate this or what are the experiences you have? Because, again, I think it's super interesting that even though Matt and I are fairly similar people in kind of how our brains work, we are so fundamentally different in this one particular issue. 
And I think it's really fascinating. So please comment below. Tell us about your your thoughts about these topics. And you know, you can always reach out to us on Twitter, through email, through Facebook. Uh, everything there is on the website, thethoughtfulgamer.com. So please let us know and let me know what you think about this topic. Because I think there's a lot of ripe discussion here. And remember the words of Go champion Shunryu Suzuki. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. But in the expert's mind, there are few. Thank you.